So if you've listened before, you know that normally I would start our show with from the recording studios of Reconstructing Judaism. I kind of put on that announcer voice for a second, but I can't even say that today. Right from the beginning, this show is different. I am in my attic, which is also a home office, which also sometimes is a fourth bedroom when my parents visit, although they live a bunch of states away and we all know they won't be visiting anytime soon because most of the people on the planet just aren't going anywhere. Usually, my editor, Sam Walks, sits at the controls a couple of feet away from me in our studio at Reconstructing Judaism. Today, he's operating the controls from his bedroom uh, about 10 miles away. So, this is from our makeshift studio. I'll say, Welcome to Evolve, Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations. Anti-Semitism is used by governments in power to divert people when they're angry at the ruling institutions. That has been for hundreds and hundreds of years. It would have been predictable that when we are looking at the largest wealth gap in American history, that anti-Semitism sure. would arise at that time. I'm your host. That that hasn't changed. Brian Schwartzman. And our guest today is Rabbi Mordecai Liebling. We're going to talk about two of his essays. They're pretty heavy. A brief history and update on anti-Semitism. And the other one is thoughts on racism and anti-Semitism. So the interview portion of the show was recorded in our Reconstructing Judaism studio in the time before much of the world shut down due to the spread of the coronavirus. And, you know, on one level, it feels like whatever we talked about before just doesn't matter now. All our reality is different, and there's certainly something to that. But we also know that all of the important issues and challenges that were there are still there and will be there waiting for us um, when, when we get back to whatever uh, passes for normal. And sadly, this is especially true of anti-Semitism and racism. These, these things just don't seem to go away. History has shown for time and again that times of uncertainty give rise to anti-Semitism. Uh, I've read that after the Black Plague wiped out as much as half of uh, some European kingdoms in the 14th century. This is, this is a, an upbeat show, by the way. Some blamed the Jews as a scapegoat, and there were violent pogroms after. And we've already seen some disturbing really troubling incidents uh, of intolerance uh, in the time of coronavirus as the world has been shutting down. And since uh, we've seen uh, white nationalist uh, conspiracy theorists alleging that the Jewish financier and philanthropist George Soros somehow collaborated with China's ruling party to spread the virus. And we've also seen really troubling um, anti-Chinese racism in, in the United States and around the globe. So we hope you're having a meaningful Passover. We know, we know it's a Passover like, like no other. And for this show, I think let's keep in mind that um, issues of anti-Semitism, oppression, racism, it's, it's part of the Passover, Passover story. So let's, uh, let's hold that as we dive into the topic. So 
This was quite an interview, and we cover a lot of ground, just you can tell by the two titles of the essays. From the 2007 Unite the Right rally, where, where um, Rabbi Liebling was on the front lines confronting the white supremacists, um, to the breakup of the fabled Black Jewish Civil Rights Alliance. Um, um, you can let me know what, what you think. Um, you know, I'm always, I'm always ready to take, uh, to get emails, um, and hear from you at bschwartzman at reconstructingjudaism.org. So as a reminder, this is, this I say every, every episode, all of the essays discussed on the show are available to read for free on the Evolve website, and that's evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. And as always, the essays are not required reading for the show, but we really recommend checking them out to um, to get that extra added depth dimension. All right, let's get to the reason you're all tuning in to our guest, Rabbi Mordecai Liebling, who created and directed the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College's Innovative Social Justice Organizing Program. He's a, a 1985 RRC graduate and He's slated to receive the Ketershem Tov Award, the Reconstructionist Movement's highest honor. He spent decades in social justice organizing, and in recent years, he was the only rabbi to have answered all three clergy calls to go to civil disobedience um, demonstrations in Ferguson, Missouri, Charlottesville, Virginia, and Standing Rock, North Dakota. And we'll talk about uh, some some of that um, during this show. There's um, so many other things I can include in this intro. Rabbi Liebling has a really full uh, CV, but I think it's uh, time to go ahead and hear from our guests. So, Rabbi Liebling, welcome to the show. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So, I actually, I actually want to start back a little bit. Um, we're, we're, we're talking about two of your essays, and I think a little bit about about your biography is is important. Can you start with your your parents? I mean, you've you've spoken in the past about how much being a child of Holocaust survivors has shaped you in your life journey, you know, as an activist, as a rabbi. Since we're we're talking about anti-Semitism, I mean, they're they're clearly related. Can you talk about how that, how your parents' story and 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 that legacy for you just influences your your approach to understanding anti-Semitism? Of course. Um, both of my parents were the sole surviving members of their family to survive. My dad lost his parents and his sister. Mm. My mom lost her mom. Her dad had died previously, but her, her mom, her two sisters, a brother, and a niece. So they come from uh, the part of Poland that's now Ukraine, and that had the uh, lowest rate of Jewish survival where they came from. Wow. Uh, they came from a town called Chortkov that had 10,000 Jews before the war and 100 survived the war. Um, so I grew up certainly with, with stories of anti-Semitism. When my mother uh, was in high school, there was something called numerous clauses, which limited the number of Jews to a tiny number who could go to the public high school. And she was one of the few went to the gymnasium in the public high school and then when she began college still in poland it was also severely restricted um so anti-semitism is something that even from before the war is something my parents grew up with and certainly educated me uh into what certainly 
the most horrific forms of anti-Semitism could look like. In your Evolve essay, A Brief History and Update on Anti-Semitism, you, met, you talk about uh, being at Charlottesville, hearing, hearing the chants uh, in person that most of us have only seen on video clips of Jews will not replace us. The Unite the Right rally seems kind of like a seminal moment in, in our modern history and not for a good reason. Um, can you tell us what, what brought you there, what you saw, what you, what you took away from it? Sure. So um, <clears throat> at the time, <clears throat> excuse me, I was on the board of Trua, the Rabbinic Call for Human Rights. I'm a, a, sure. one of the founders of Trua. And Trua <clears throat> received a request from some clergy uh, folk down in Charlottesville if they could support it. And um, I went down there and because, as I've said, I know what the threat of anti-Semitism can become. So I believe strongly that it's important to stand up to uh, white supremacists whenever they try to spread their message. One of the very first rallies I've ever organized in my life was in 1978 uh, when uh, the Nazis marched in Skokie, Illinois. Sure. Um, so at the same time that the Nazis were marching in Skokie, I organized a rally in Boston in Copley Square to protest their marching and had my mother as the key speaker. Um, wow. So when we received the request to go to Charlottesville, I immediately knew that I was going to go. And then another Reconstructionist rabbi uh, ended up being able to come down to uh, Machabina Klein. A week before we went down there, we were, we were warned that there could be uh, violence and violence even that could be lethal. So it was clear before we went that the possibility existed and sadly and tragically somebody was killed in Charlottesville. So I knew I knew that I had to go and when we went down there the first evening um, there was a service uh, in the church, a multi-faith service. And in the middle of the service, the police came in and said, nobody can leave. Um, because if you remember the night before the Unite the Right rally, they had a rally on the campus of UVA, University of Virginia. Right. And they were just literally two blocks away from the church. Um, and the police said, it's not safe for you to leave the building right now. And I flashed on a scene um, from Birmingham, uh, Alabama, where uh, Dr. King was having a rally and was told they couldn't leave the church because there was a mob outside. Um, so after, I don't know, a half hour or an hour, we waited and the police said it was okay to leave by a back door. And when we went outside, we could see torches in the distance and we could hear them chanting Jews will not replace us and that was eerie because it was at night we saw the torches we were frightened you know trying to get to our cars um, so that was the night before and then the next day um, there were actually two separate sort of counter demonstrations one that was not going to confront the right that was about a mile away and one that was going to actually confront the right, right at the park where the Confederate statue was. I decided to go to that one uh, 
and there were about 50 or 60 clergy people from across the country there. Um, I was actually the only rabbi there on that line, and there were it was uh, Salem Pierce from Trua, who was a rabbinical student, was, was there as well. Um, and we uh, ended up uh, ar literally arm's length away from uh, the white supremacists who were uh, chanting uh, literally just in our faces. And on the other side of us, also an arm's length away, were the, the anti-fascists who were chanting. So we were uh, this thin line of 50 clergy caught between these two angry groups that were about uh, to fight. It, it really, it, it, it completely felt like violence was going to break out. And I turned to Salem and said, Salem, it's about to get violent, I think. And we, we probably had time for us to, to, to leave because we were clearly not capable of stopping that violence and the police were nowhere to be seen. And just then the person who was the head of the clergy team said, yes, let's leave. And as we left, the, the, the two sides started uh, scuffling with each other. Um, and, you know, the white supremacists were, you know, the, their, were, the, the looks on their face were quite, quite vicious. Um, and they were chanting blood and soil, which is an old Nazi uh, chant. Um, I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned Birmingham. Um, I mean, this was... I, I, you know, over my 50 years as an activist, I, I have been in physically threatening situations before. Um, so I, this wasn't life altering, but it certainly uh, uh, was frightening and, uh, you know, conveyed the seriousness uh, of the situation. And that white nationalism is uh, alive and well and growing in the United States. What is showing up? There, there. Do who's who's the audience um, in in that sense? Is it is it to show, you know, the white supremacists that not, you know, not everybody feels the way they do? Is it is it to show the rest, you know, the rest of the country? I guess that's what I, you know, that's what I that's what I wondered in in that sense. I mean, who is the audience for the counter protest? Right. Sure. Yes. Well, I think it's important to. Uh, First, let me let me back up for a second. There is debate, a, a valid, serious debate um, in in liberal and progressive uh, world. Uh, when do you and when don't you show up when white supremacists, white nationalists are out in force? There are moments when it seems that going out there. Um, lends publicity, makes it into spectacle, and there's more media coverage. And there are times when it seems like the best strategy is to ignore them and not show up. And that, you know, what if you gave a war and nobody came kind of, you know, thing. Um, that's a legitimate conversation. And I think it's, there is no definitive answer and different situations call for different responses. Uh, for example, when uh, some other group of, uh, of uh, Islamophobes at one point several years ago mounted public campaigns in several cities around Islamophobia, um, some cities responded by doing absolutely nothing and there was no sort of media air and the, and the campaign died. In other cities, there was a significant 
um, uh, counter ads, and that was also successful in some way. So it's it's hard to tell. So on a case by case basis, you have to decide what the best tactic is at that moment. Given the size of of this, and that Unite the Right was really trying to call their national forces, and that local groups in Charlottesville in Virginia felt threatened and that the local groups asked for help because of the situation in the town itself. I felt it was important and appropriate to support the local groups who had made the the strategic decision and in Charlottesville it was important to physically confront and show that the right wasn't welcome there. Wow. I think that 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 leads us in, into into your essay, um, a brief history and update on on anti-Semitism, um, which really which really does that. It offers kind of a condensed historical narrative with with some um, recent developments, particularly since 2016. Um, Why did you set out to to write this piece, and what did, what did you hope people would uh, would take away from it? I think there are competing narratives out there about the causes of anti-Semitism sure. and, and when it emerges. And, you know, it's, you know, as I said, I led a demonstration in 1978 around it. And I also started leading my first workshops on anti-Semitism then. So, uh, you know, I've thought about it and studied it for, you know, literally decades. Um, and, it's important, I believe, to un- have a historical perspective and an analysis of how and when anti-Semitism uh, erupts. So it's very clear that anti-Semitism is used by uh, governments in power to uh, divert people when they're angry at the ruling institutions. That has been consistent uh, for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, and it would have been predictable that when we are looking at the largest wealth gap in American history, that anti-Semitism sure. would arise at that time. Because that's what it ha- that's what has happened for hundreds of years, and why should this be different? So when there is a rise in social unrest, when people are looking for somebody to blame, when there are people in power who can use anti-Semitism to bolster their power, they're going to use it or they're going to give it air. They might not initiate it, but it will be like Mm. Trump saying, oh, there's good on both sides. So Mm. he will give dog whistles, silent whistles to say, oh, it's okay to do this. So it's not about there being this grand plot from the top. It's about allowing the the anti-semitism frequently exists sub rosa among fringe groups and there are times when it is useful for people in power to say oh well you know we're not going to be we're not going to be so critical of anti-semitism now and and sort of allow it to arise it seems like you you knowingly and intentionally waded into an area of Great contention within within the Jewish community, and 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 thought sought to provide some some clarity or perspective. This this whole question over who, what's the greatest anti-Semitism to fear? There are plenty that say it's it's the right and white supremacists. We we hear a lot of noise lately about um, 
about anti-Semitism from, you know, from, from the left, you know, from the left and you can't be, you can't be a progressive and be, you know, be a Zionist. Um, and, and we also hear, I've heard that the argument itself is the greatest threat to the Jewish community today. And, and, um, so my, my sense, if I read your, your, your article correctly was, was you were, you were really trying to, to walk a fine, nuanced middle road and, and just kind of wondering if, if you could sort of clarify your thoughts sure. on, 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 on that I, or, or not, not okay. clarify, but expand upon for, for the sure. reader. So the I certainly see anti-Semitism on the right as the greater physical danger to American Jews. That if you look at sure. who has killed Jews in America, it's basically uh, the right. The most recent cases in New Jersey are uh, very fringe groups that are neither right or left, as far as we can tell. Um, but the, on the right, there's a wonderful and important article by a man named Eric Ward. And you're referring to Eric K. Ward of the Western State Center. Who has pro who spent his lifetime uh, studying uh, anti-Semitism and racism and, and white nationalist groups. He happens to be an African-American man. Um, and his analysis is that anti-Semitism is a core principle of um, the white nationalist groups in America now. White nationalist groups are seeking to take power. White supremacy has existed in America for 400 years. And the particular manifestation and part it's taking now are white nationalist groups who avowedly say they want to create a white nationalist ethno state in the United States. So their deep racism and deep homophobia combined with their anti-Semitism leads them to a platform of the Jews are behind everything and we can never, and to them, Jews are not white people, and we can never have the proper white Christian ethno state that we want unless we get rid of the Jews. And that's central to their platform. There's no way out of that. It's core to what white nationalism is in the United States today. And if you take the plunge you know, into their websites, that's what you'll see. Um, Anti-Semitism, you know, on the left or in the progressive world is, is of a different nature. So it, just as if we think that every person who is white has learned racism, then we also can think that every person um, who is not Jewish has learned anti-Semitism in some way, shape, or form. And that anti-Semitism is always has the potential of arising. So that is certainly true among, uh, you know, non-Jewish folks, be they, be they Christian or Muslim, uh, in the progressive world as well. And, you know, most, most of them don't have the a sense of the nuanced history of, of Israel, Palestine, the Middle East that uh, many other folks have. So, when people oppose the Israeli occupation of Palestinians, 
it's not surprising that some people would fall into some anti-Semitic tropes who really don't know Jew Jewish history. Um, and that has to be opposed in that we, ha we have to educate people and work with people. And their support of Palestinians is not based on anti-Semitism. So they can let go, uh, they can drop or whatever, let go of whatever anti-Semitism is there. And essentially their uh, demand for justice for Palestinians is still going to remain a demand of justice for Palestinians. Um, you know, whether I, I personally don't believe that being anti-Zionist means ipso facto you are anti-Semitic. It is a mistake to conflate those pieces. Judaism is not the support of Israel as a Jewish state. That conflation didn't happen until after 1948. It certainly wasn't true for the first 2,000 years. So I believe that you uh, can, uh, and many people are, uh, proud, wonderful Jewish people and have positions that say that I can't be a Zionist because Zionism uh, is in some way antithetical or not compatible rather with uh, democracy if you're saying up front that it has to be a Jewish state and you have millions of Palestinians within that state, how can that, how can it be democratic? So you can have that position and say, so I can't be a Zionist, but that doesn't make you anti-Semitic. That is a consistently a sort of political, ethical, moral position to take. Do some of those folks lapse into anti-Semitism at times? Absolutely. Have there been uh, cases on college campuses where uh, sort of the sort of idealism of youth has led to anti-Semitic acts towards Jewish college students? Absolutely. That doesn't mean that uh, left anti-Semitism can be ignored. It certainly has to be challenged, but it is not the kind of threat to Jews the way uh, white nationalism is that is actively seeking to build a white ethno state and have Jews removed, as in the chance we heard in Charlottesville, Jews will not replace us. I mean, I think so, there's no there's no question about about um, about physical force and and and, and threat. Um, I mean, I guess I guess personally speaking, uh, speaking for me and not the movement, in in a time of um, you know when when democracy seems seems threatened in peril, this. This idea of not being able to participate, not having a political home because of because of identification with the state of Israel is 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 problematic. I mean, you mentioned college campuses, but I, I think it's happened it's happened elsewhere. We've we, you know we've heard we've heard that kind of rhetoric from 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 other other leaders. So, so it, it so one one of the things I do in the world is I uh, I'm part of a training team that's uh, interracial and Jewish and Christian. And we do trainings on racism, anti-Semitism, and Christian hegemony um, for community organizers around the country. 
coming from a variety of faith traditions and, you know, certainly uh, multiracial. Um, so in those contexts, I'm certainly able to have conversations with people um, about progressives and Israel, et cetera, and talk about how uh, one's position on Israel can't be a litmus test for joining a progressive group. So I would agree that if your position on Israel becomes a litmus test for whether or not you can be part of, of a progressive group, that that's a manifestation of anti-Semitism. And, and that's the conversation to have. There are certainly, uh, let's say, Chinese folks who are part of progressive groups and nobody asks them what their position on Tibet is. You know, China is certainly, uh, you know, committing cultural genocide in Tibet. And um, the truth is that a lot of uh, Chinese progressives support the Tibetan government. I've had those conversations, but nobody on the college campus, when a, when a Chinese student wants to, or a student of Chinese origin uh, wants to join a progressive group, but they ask their position on Tibet. So to ask to make Israel a litmus test in that case is, also, is an anti-Semitic act. And that's the conversation, that's the struggle to have to explain why that's anti-Semitism. All right, short time out here. I hope you're finding this a powerful interview. Would you like others to experience the same kind of conversation? Please take a moment to give us a five-star rating or leave any kind of review. Positive ratings and reviews really help other people find out about the show. While we have you for just another couple seconds, if you'd like to support these groundbreaking conversations of Evolve on the podcast, on the website, in our web conversations, or even the curriculum we're producing, you can support us. You can make a contribution to reconstructingjudaism.org slash evolve hyphen donate. We know this is a tough time for many listeners, but any gift you can give will, will make a big difference in making sure we can still uh, bring this to you. So thanks for listening. And um, all right, now back to Rabbi Mordecai Liebling. Your piece on uh, thoughts on racism and anti-Semitism, it was based on a series of trainings you did for uh, Faith in Action and other organizations, uh, a national group focused on social justice. Um, can you also tell us about the setting of that training and what were the goals so we can, you know, we sure, can the better... setting of that training is working with community organizers from around the country um, looking at issues of, of racism, anti-Semitism, and Christian hegemony. So certainly uh, within uh, interfaith and interracial groups, uh, questions of racism and anti-Semitism arise that uh, prevent white Jews, black Jews, and uh, black uh, Christians uh, from working together. It's important to tease out all the ways in which uh, uh, racism and anti-Semitism can interact with each other to make those conversations difficult. So what we know is that it is important for white people, whether Jewish or Christian, to understand the role of white privilege in uh, this society. But many Jews feel uh, afraid and under threat and see themselves differently than white Christians. So what I like to say is that Jews who present white, and, and there's certainly mm -hmm. about 10% or more of Jews in America now are Jews of color, but for the Jews who present as white, 
um, we generally have the advantages of white privilege. What well, we present white, we're treated as white people. And when anti-Semitism arises, we could lose those privileges, as has happened in, in, in Europe and in mm. other places. And it's certainly what the white nationalists, you know, are saying to the to the extreme white nationalists, like the folks who are in Charlottesville. Jews aren't even; they don't consider Jews even white. So we are we have provisional white privilege mm. in that. Should anti-Semitism arise to the level of state power, those privileges can be revoked. But we do have to recognize that in the normal course of events, Jews who present as white will have privilege, and we have to uh, understand the, the consequences of, of that privilege. I mean, you talk about it starting in... Um Really, starting in the late '60s with the, um, the the famous New York teacher strike, um, and especially in the '80s and '90s, th- there was a lot of hand wringing, certainly in the Jewish community, on the breakup of the Black Jewish Alliance. I, I think it got more; it was it, it was a larger in the issue in the Jewish community than in than in the African American community. It kind of briefly rose up again in in. Um, Around the 2008 Democratic primary, with with the focus on uh, Barack Obama and, and and his pastor, but it's 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 really only recently that it's sort of come back to the fore, which is one of the reasons you're writing about it. Can you can you postulate on why why that is? Why why? Well, I could say a couple of things about that. One, a, a serious part of the Black Jewish Alliance story was a myth held in the Jewish community. If you look at um, the civil rights movement era, there were certainly uh, many Jews who were prominent in the civil rights movement, but very, very few of them were there as Jews, other than, of course, Heschel and folks like uh, Everett Gendler, Rabbi Everett Gendler, and uh, uh, Rabbi um, uh, Joachim Prince, who actually spoke at the March on Washington and given a powerful speech right before King's I Have a Dream speech. There were a few identified Jews like that, but the overwhelming part of the Jewish community did not support the civil rights movement, didn't say anything other than the Religious Action Center very few of the reform movement, very few institutions really came out for uh, civil rights or took a risk. So it was much larger in the, the support was much larger in the, in the eyes of Jews than it was in the black community. Many, I mean, the like, young men killed in Mississippi are also right. part of that myth, right? I mean, right. You know, Schwerner, 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 Cheney, and Goodman were killed. Schwerner and Goodman, you know, were Jews. So the Jewish community sees them as heroes, but the black community sees them more as white people. They weren't. They didn't go as Jews. They didn't. They didn't go. You know, they, certainly none of them were a kippah, and none of them can't went out there and said, "I'm doing this because of my Jewish identity." That's not what. The, that wasn't the ethos. Um, so. The, the 
there was an imbalance into into what the perception is both in the black and Jewish communities about an imbalance about the perception about what our involvement was. Yes, there were very there were a number of Jews who were prominent in the movement, and there were a few prominent Jews who were involved. But by and large, institutionally, the Jewish community was not involved. And then, in the first great, then there were two significant things happened. One is the Ocean Hill Brownsville teacher strike in 1965 or 66, I think. Um, I think it was 68, but we'll we'll check that. That's okay. So, um, and it was the predominantly Jewish teachers union that uh, was involved, the AFT in New York, and uh, the black community. I I know, I also grew up in Brownsville. So I lived in Brownsville. Oh, is that right? I didn't know you were a fellow New Yorker too. Yeah. Till the age of 10, I lived in Brownsville before I lived in East Flatbush. So I know Brownsville to some extent. uh, And Brownsville was, uh, you know, certainly by the mid 60s, uh, you know, pretty much an African-American neighborhood. Uh, Latinx, I guess, as, as well. And people wanted local control of the schools. And so basically it was a black community wanting local control of schools and who, who the, with the power to appoint principals and somewhat teachers. And the teachers union that was Jewish led that resisted local control because they wanted the more traditional union control of, of hiring and firing. Uh, anti-Semitism was injected into that fight, uh, and that caused a, a, a serious public rupture in New York, sort of the quasi-capital of American Jewish life right. between blacks and Jews and rippled out. At the same time, we had the first, uh, early late 60s, early 70s, we had the first uh, thre- uh, challenges to affirmative action. There was a famous case, the Bakke case, challenging affirmative action in colleges and the American Jewish uh, Congress. And I I think maybe the American Jewish committee, many prominent ADL, many prominent Jewish organizations um, signed on with Baki to challenge affirmative action because they were concerned that if there were racial quotas, that Jews somehow would lose out and, uh, also the legacy of Jewish quotas keeping Jews out of many schools. So that caused another rupture institutionally and personally in the, in the black and Jewish community where the black communities felt that affirmative action was necessary. They had an, you know, many, we could talk, talk about it now as an understanding of white privilege, whereas the Jewish community opposed affirmative action. So that was really Putting the inst- putting the two communities institutionally at odds with each other starting then, um, I think people forget that now. Broken Alliance, a book a book from the late eighties, early nineties, by Jonathan Kaufman, really really covers this well. But do you have a, do you have any sense why this is why we're why we're really talking about this alliance again in in, in or or lack of well, in twenty twenty? Well, well, one prominent reason is because. Um, Several years ago, when the Black Lives Matter platform was released, they right, released right. 100 plus pages on, oh God, I don't know, every imaginable policy area 
housing, taxes, healthcare, education, every significant policy area in American life was addressed in this 100-plus page document. And there was one sentence in there um, that said something about uh, unfortunate use of words about Jews and, and genocide, Jews leading, uh, doing genocidal things to Palestinians or something of that nature. The, uh, the, the only Jewish institutions to comment on the whole platform only focused on that one sentence, ignored the other 99 pages of the document and ignored all the other issues. Uh, the black community was taken somewhat uh, aback by that particularly because that was a coalition document and the person who actually wrote that little piece of it was somebody from a Jewish background. Um, a lot of folks there not having a, a, a very sophisticated analysis of Palestine and Israel and not going into it deeply. So their response was, we just spent a year developing a sophisticated document on a whole lot of domestic policy areas. And that's our main focus. And the Jewish community, your only response is about what we said about Israel and the very really tangential part of the document. That ignited a whole rupture again within the progressive world, because it's Black Lives Matter. And the, the first statement was issued by the Boston uh, Jewish Community Relations Committee, which, which is probably the most progressive JCRC in the country and had a good relationship with uh, African-American groups. So uh, that ignited this whole piece again. And um, also what happened, I was also, another place that I was, was in Ferguson uh, when uh, the riots were taking place and the local people invited clergy to come. Uh, so I was down there and spent a week or so in, in the streets in Ferguson, you know, and there were signs there from Gaza to Ferguson. And that was because um, the day when the, when the riots broke out and tear gas was thrown at the demonstrators, they immediately got emails from people in Gaza about how you deal with tear gas. So they felt very supported by them. And it is true that the Israeli uh, army or Israeli contractors have trained American police, various American police forces around the country in uh, anti-riot tactics. So Israel was uh, certainly uh, related. Uh, people saw the relationship between Israel and police departments and saw the relation, saw the people from Gaza reaching out to them. And so that raised the issue again, because there were signs from, from Gaza to Ferguson, um, which uh, upset. I have to say, when I went, was marching the streets in Ferguson and, you know, and saw those signs, I, I was gut-wrenching. It was, I felt horrible. You know, it's like, why is this here? And I have to think about it and talk to people. It was, it was emotionally, viscerally, a painful thing for me to see the signs you know, from Gaza to Ferguson. And, it, you know, I really, I had a, quite a few conversations with folks about it till I understood, you know, where it was coming from. As I just said, I think an additional piece, if you are a person of color in this country uh, and you have grown up in a racist country and understand how racism operates and you uh, see a situation several thousand miles away and you don't know a lot about it, 
and you see uh, predominantly white people oppressing people of color, you bring your lens of racism to it because that's what you know. On some level, it's if you have, you know, if you have a hammer, everything is a nail. Um, so if you, what your life is, an analysis of racism, that's what you're going to see. This this essay did come out before um, a spike of, of of what appear to be anti-Semitic incidents in the New York area. Um, which, as far as we know, has been reported uh, perpetrated by African Americans against Orthodox Jews or people who appear to be Orthodox Jews, with with some, with two incidents and in, in killings in Jersey City and Muncie that that really got that were horrific and and got a lot of attention. Um, I, I guess I'm just, how does this uptick in violence fit into the context of right. what Certainly. we've been talking about? Yeah, and we have to look at that. And if we look at those particular incidents, um, the incident in Jersey City was uh, perpetrated by uh, a couple uh, who apparently belonged to a, 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 a very fringe group called Black Hebrews um, that are have a very strange ideology, and they they don't like white Jews or mainstream or you know any Ashkenazic Jews, Sephardic Jews, any. That they are their own separate thing, which are, and they don't seem to be either traditionally Jewish or Christian, and it's a it's a it's a, like a cult group one might say. So I don't think we can generalize from that. And uh, the incident uh, in Muncie, from everything I read, this was a person with mental illness. Right. Um, so it, it's hard to generalize. These are not folks who are part of mo- real serious movements or representative of the black community in any way. Whereas the white nationalists who murdered people in Pittsburgh and in California, um, clearly espoused an ideology and are part of a much larger ideological frame framework. And, you know, there's also a piece of, tension between uh in in the hasidic community uh in new york uh with people of color around gentrification issues that goes back 20 30 years and is a pretty complicated history you you cited um a a 1967 uh james baldwin essay i've i've read a fair amount of baldwin i i hadn't come across this essay before i found it surprisingly applicable to today. Um, I mean, the part you quote, um, he, and you have in brackets, Jews, is singled out by Negroes, not because he acts differently from other white men, but because he doesn't. His major distinction is given him by that history of Christendom, which has so successfully victimized both Negroes and Jews. Can you talk about this essay? Why, what you know, what you you take away from it in in, in 2020? Because it did seem really... Really powerful and 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 you know, and also seem to be, you know, taking taking everybody to task for um, for for stereotypes and acrimony continuing. Right, it's, it's a it's a powerful piece as as you say, and you know, in some ways, uh, we are we again. It, it's part of human nature in some ways that we get angriest and are most disappointed in the people that we expect more from. Hmm. So he's 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 explaining like, hey, you guys, you Jews, you've had a history of oppression. You know what this does. You should know better than this. How come you don't know better than to uh, treat black folks this way? So it's like 
he's calling us to he's calling us to accountability for our history. Remember, he's writing about his growing up in Harlem in the fifties, early sixties, when many of the landlords and 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 storekeeper and stores were owned by Jews, um, and the interface for. Uh, a lot of black folks in New York in those days was the Jew as landlord uh, and as shopkeeper. So that, you know, has a certain inherent tension in it to begin with. Right. And, and, and he also he also takes he also takes African-Americans to task for for anti-Semitism as well, yep. saying you should he know does. better. So that that's I think what he does. Um, I He's a and Baldwin is amazing that, you know, uh, I, I read something else of his recently, and you know, 50 years later, he reads totally fresh. We've talked about anti-Semitism, white supremacy, uh, you know, acrimony between the black and Jewish community. I, I, I know, I mean, I know you're carried forward by by a certain amount of faith. Uh, where, where can can you find optimism for us in all yeah, this? Absolutely. What 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 can we? Well, I think optimism, one piece of optimism is that um, we are now learning that, as I said earlier, most of the census studies shows that pro approximately 10% or more, some even people say as high as 20% right. of Jews in America are Jews, are, are Jews of color. And the 10% number comes from a, a, a population study released a week ago in Philadelphia that said that 10% of Jews in greater Philadelphia and Philadelphia is the, they said the third largest Jewish community in the United States now um, are Jews of color. Um, so I think Jews of color are playing a very important role in creating a bridge. I think one thing that's happening mm. is that the present, the acknowledged presence of Jews of color are forcing Hmm. synagogues and other Jewish institutions to deal with our own racism. So internally, we have to become and hopefully are becoming a more inclusive community. Certainly at RRC and Reconstructing Judaism, a lot of right. work is being done to, to look at racism. And, and I'm proud of our institutions for, for doing that. And um, Jews of color uh, understand both anti-Semitism and racism. So just as we and the Jew, we white Jews are being educated around issues of racism more, those folks are also, and I, you know, experienced it really working in the uh, black community, com communities of color, to look at, to educate folks about anti-Semitism. Um, so there's a, I think an optimistic piece is Jew is the Jewish community becoming a more inclusive multiracial community and thereby allowing us uh, to build uh, greater bridges um, to communities of color in the United States now. And as far as anti-Semitism and white supremacy, I mean, do we just, do we just kind of hope that, that times return to normal and, and we and don't with... hope we work really hard at it. Um, we cannot just sit back and wait and hope for anti-Semitism to pass. Historically, we know that's a mistake. We have to create alliances. Our greatest uh, safety for the Jewish people has always been in a democratic society. That's the one place that both the 
left, right, and center of the Jewish community agrees that a democratic society is the safest place for for Jews. And uh, we believe uh, that creating coalitions um, with other threatened or oppressed people is the best way to uh, fight white nationalism and to ensure democracy in America. Democracy in America is the way we stay safe and we have to work with other groups to ensure voting rights, uh, to ensure uh, uh, the most democratic country that we can possibly have. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time and and sharing your thoughts and for, for all your work on these issues. Thank you, Brian. It's really my pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for listening to our interview with Rabbi Mordecai Liebling. If you enjoyed our conversation, please be sure to read his essays, Thoughts on Racism and Anti-Semitism, and A Brief History and Update on Anti-Semitism. There's a, there are a ton of other essays on, on the Evolve site uh, connected to anti-Semitism. And uh, we mentioned um, the James Baldwin piece. We will uh, link to it in our show notes. Really powerful piece I recommend you, you check out. So what did you think of today's episode? Uh, we want to hear from you. I want to hear from you. Evolve is about curating meaningful conversations and that includes you. Send your questions, comments, feedback, you can reach me directly at bschwartzman at reconstructingjudaism.org. And uh, we'll be back next month. So please stay safe, stay healthy, be there for each other, show compassion. We'll, we'll all get through this. Evolve, Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations is executive produced by Rabbi Jacob Staub and edited by Sam Walks. Our theme song, Ilufinu, is by Rabbi Miriam Margols. This show is a production of Reconstructing Judaism. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and we will see and hear you next time.